Hey, welcome to Sanctus Young Adults Online, inviting young adults into God's redemptive story. My name is Josh, I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Sanctus Church. I, I hope that these conversations, these discussions, and these teachings will be meaningful and impactful to you. Would you take a second to subscribe and to follow so you never miss any content that we upload. So Citizens and uh, Strangers is uh, the series that we find ourselves in. And we're going to continue that series tonight, so you can turn with me to Matthew. And Matthew 6 is where we're going to be at. And um, some of you might know this passage, actually. Um, it's the Lord's Prayer. And yeah, we're talking about prayer tonight. And it's the center of the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, uh, as I've said earlier, as I've got up here and talked to you guys, like the Bible and the way that it's written, everything is intentional. And so it's really interesting right here in this Lord's Prayer, we're going to find the central theme, if you will, of the whole sermon. But tonight, my heart, as I come up here and talk to you guys and I share, is really, I want you to just picture us just having coffee, okay? Having coffee, talking about what it means to follow Jesus. And right off the bat, I'm going to be real with you, it's hard. It's a struggle sometimes to follow Jesus, and tonight, as Jesus lays down this model of how to pray, more than focusing on the how, I want to focus on why, why we don't pray. And really what I want to do tonight is just share from my own experience of reasons that I found out that the Holy Spirit has shown to me of why I don't pray, why I don't go to God in prayer. And really, um, here at Sanctus Young Adults, this is what we believe when it comes to prayer. It's actually central to everything that we do here. And this is what we believe. We believe that prayer changes reality. The starting point for all significant works of God is prayer. It is here that we have an opportunity to interact with the Spirit of God and participate in the work of bringing redemption to our generation and healing into our lives. That's what we believe about prayer here. And when, I, I, when I'm talking about prayer, I, I was talking about it with the pre-service team uh, around this statement, and I was getting really excited because I really truly believe that this talk is going to be pivotal, pivotal as a community to our understanding of what we want to see God do amongst us and through us as we come into 2020. And you need to understand that prayer, prayer is in itself a tool to tap into the heart of God. We tap into the heart of God, and that's where the power to see what God wants to do in this community comes from. That's where the power to love one another like Christ loved us comes from. That's where the power to bring the kingdom in the here and the now comes from. And we call this series Citizens and Strangers, emphasis on the citizen, is because we are citizens of heaven already. We're already citizens of heaven Therefore, everywhere we go, we're bringing heaven's culture and infusing it into the world around us. And simply tonight, when it comes to understanding prayer, I want you to walk away with this one understanding, and that's this. Prayer is more about developing a relationship than carrying out a transaction. Prayer is more about developing a relationship than carrying out a transaction. First time I heard this, it's not an original thought of mine. I heard a pastor in the States say it, and uh, it was so long ago that I forgot who this guy was. But 
I thought to myself, like, okay, this is a really simple statement. Some of you are probably just nodded your head as soon as it popped up on the screen, right? But the more and more that I thought about it, the more and more I thought about the implications of it, it changed the way that I prayed. It changed the way that I communicated to God. That, and with this book, uh, it's called The the Deepest Longing of Our Hearts, Prayers Our Deepest Longing, inspired this talk and has changed the way I prayed over the last couple years. And I just want to share some of those observations with you. But this is my heart for you as a young adult community, that you will not just pray more consistently, more regularly, but also you will grow and mature in the way that you pray. And to see that, we're going to go to Matthew 6. And really, we're going to just camp on two verses, really two words. So if you would read with me, Matthew 6, 9, reads this, Jesus saying, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray one more time. God, we just give you this moment, this time, this space to do what you will. Just with the prayer that we just read, God, we pray that you would glorify your name, that your kingdom would come and your will be done in this space, in our hearts, in our lives, in this community, in this church, in this region, in the city of Toronto. God, we just ask and pray that uh, wherever we're at, if we're exploring Christianity, if we've been walking with you uh, for years, that you would just speak to us profoundly, prophetically, that you would meet us just where we're at, and you would just change our relationship when it comes to how we interact and communicate to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know about you, but no one really taught me how to pray. Like a lot of the times I just saw my parents or people or watched on TV and I saw prayer modeled for me. And for a lot of us, we understand that, you know, prayer is simply communicating to God. And so you probably picked it up like that, right? Even if you don't call yourself a Christian, you still know that, okay, I can just open my mouth and talk to God. And you just say whatever's on your heart, whatever's on your mind. At least I know that's how my kids learned how to pray, right? They watched me do different prayers. Maybe I prayed for the food. Maybe I prayed with them before they went to bed. And especially my five-year-old Mason, well, he's seven now, but when he was five, he would just pray. He would just say whatever was on his heart. And for some reason, all the time when it came to prayer right before bed, uh, he would pray that uh, Jesus wouldn't get eaten by the sharks. And I I, I found that hilarious because he understood that Jesus died, but he just didn't know how. And so since then, we've worked on that. But, like, he he just, like, figured out like okay I'm gonna just talk to God so he would say whatever's on his heart and I love that like when it comes to prayer I just want to encourage you that it's just talking to God and wherever you you're at when it comes to your relationship with God that's the best place to start and that's a totally fine place to start but when it comes to the disciples right and this interaction right here Jesus is talking to the disciples he's talking to the crowds it's very interesting that Jesus says these words this is then is how you should pray you would think that the disciples would just pick up on how to pray as Jesus was probably modeling for them throughout these stories of this book Matthew Mark Luke John or all these biographical accounts of Jesus and central to his ministry is prayer And the disciples must have observed this. They must have noticed, most importantly, Jesus' real depth and power are drawn from his prayer life. 
And Jesus, wanting the disciples to learn that and figure out how to do that, so to speak, he teaches them how to pray by starting this prayer with the most beautiful words ever written, our Father. Our Father. And I don't want us to move too quickly past these words because the implications of these two words are profound. First, our, okay? When Jesus says our, he's talking about all of them together. Sure, we pray individually, but what he wants you to get right from the get-go is that he's calling us to corporate prayer. He gave them this model of prayer and he expected them to do it together. And this is important for us to get right now in the 21st century because we live in this like individualistic culture. So we take this and we go away with it and then we just whisper it uh, in our time alone with God. And that's great. But first and foremost, Jesus wants us to get that this is a corporate prayer that is supposed to be practiced in community. Martin Luther, a theologian, puts it like this. The Lord's prayer binds people together within one another so that each prays for the other and with the other. To truly experience God in all his fullness, I need you to get this tonight. You need to experience it in community. You need community. That's why we come together. That's why we worship. That's why we uh, pray together. That's why we open the Bible and talk about what God's word is and explain it and observe it. Because that's how we truly, fully experience God, together. And I say this as an encouragement to some of you. When it comes to prayer, if you are um, just scared to pray out loud, or you're thinking too much about what the person next to you is going to think about you, or if you're going to say the wrong thing, or whatever thought is going through your head, can I just encourage you tonight to just pray? Like, God knows your heart. God knows what you're trying to express, specifically if you're not very good with words. And the thing is, that small step of just praying out loud when it comes to a group prayer time, when it comes to a worship moment, when you gather as friends, I don't know, that small step of praying out loud will lead you to experience God in a fuller way. And I know that to be true in my own life, and that's why I share it with you. But just think about prayer in community for a second, right? I'm collaborative by nature, so if you take any task, like I always like to do it in a group. Uh, sometimes I'll just wander over to Josh's office just to like figure out something together, even though I could probably do that task more efficiently by myself. And one, one thing that uh, for sure I love doing in groups, even though I, it's probably like a one-man task, was back when I was a pastor on the West Coast, I used to get all these receipts. I used to be a young adult pastor like Josh, and I used to be a site pastor uh, of one of the sites back there, and I used to get all these receipts, and I hated that part of my job. So I just let them pile up, pile up, pile up, pile up. So like three, four months worth of receipts would be sitting on my desk, and the best part about it is I had interns back there. So I'd gather all the interns, and uh, Zach, if you're listening to this podcast, you're still the best intern, and we would all get into my office, and we would just hash out these receipts like crazy. We'd fly through them. And I loved it. Why? Because they would hold me accountable to the task of getting the job done. So apply that to prayer, right? In the same way, I know when I'm praying in a group, I'm more focused. I can sustain prayer for a longer time. And not only that, I believe it, it brings us to a greater understanding of who God is. 
Because you're listening to the words of other people and how they view God and how God's revealed who he is to them. So it builds your faith. Hence why Jesus, when starting this, this very famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, he starts with the word, our. It encapsulates that thought. But Jesus also puts this other word next to it, our Father. And it reads, Father, hallowed be your name, Jesus says. So I wanted to take apart this whole prayer. Like, that was my goal. But I couldn't move past this word, our, or Father, sorry. I couldn't move past this word, Father. Like, I, I, I just stopped there over and over again. And it, it, it was kind of ironic. It was funny. If you were there this morning to hear Pastor John talk about Father, and his, his, you would think that me and him are on the same frequency or something. But uh, I know I've talked about it before in this community, but the implications to understanding this prayer are very deep. Why? Because starting this prayer off with Father tells us that prayer is more about the relationship than the transaction. We see it right off the bat. And if we, have, if we work through this whole prayer, you would get the same sense. That's what I figured out. Not only that, as I said earlier, the whole Sermon on the Mount is based around this idea, Father. This is like, remember, the center of the center of the center of the sermon? And it's this word, Father. This is the central theme that you will find throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But before I unpack this word, I just want to address like the elephant in the room, if you will. And I want to set just a bit of common ground for all of us, dispel some false notions, if you will. And it's this. In the words of the spiritual writer Henry Nouwen, I want to pray, but I also want to, don't want to miss out on anything. Television, movies, socializing, drinking in the world. Anybody else that resonate really deeply? Like the last thing I want, thank you, Fro, the only honest person here. <laughs> the last thing I want to do when I get home, right? is pray. After a long day, I just want to get in bed, watch some Netflix, and go to sleep, right? That's what I want to do. And I'm sure, like, when it comes to this prayer life of yours, there's been struggles. There's been ups and downs. There's been moments where you just don't want to pray. And when we settle down and pray, be it sitting, kneeling, whatever, our craving for experiences feels starved. And those cravings begin to protest, if you will. That's why they call prayer a discipline, because it's hard to do. Along with that, I don't know about you, but I get bored, right? You're praying by yourself in your room for whatever, and your mind wanders to your to-do list or whatever. You look at the time. Sure, sometimes my prayer times are great. I really sense God's presence. I really, uh, it's moments that bring about, like, this crazy amount of joy. I know that he's near. But a lot of times, like, it's not like that. If I'm being really real with you guys, it's not like that at all. And because a lot of us operate with this idea in the room, maybe subconsciously, that if our hearts are not in something, it's not worth doing, hence why so many young adults move from job to job to job so quickly, when applied to prayer, what we've done is we just take this false, we build this false notion, if you will, about what constitutes prayer. That it always needs to be this ecstatic experience. Every time I go into my prayer closet or kneel beside my bed at night, whatever, however you pray, it has to be this ecstatic experience. And sure, a lot of writers say when it comes to the early stages of your prayer life, you know, quote unquote, the honeymoon stage, like that, that's what the experience is. 
But then they go on to say that those experiences actually become less and less and less the longer that you follow Jesus. And the deeper that you advance in spirituality and prayer, the less those moments happen. But this is the encouragement for all of us. We're not regressing when it comes to our Christianity. We're actually growing in spirituality. And this is where the understanding of prayer as a relationship comes into play. So me and my wife, we've been uh, married for 11 years now, okay? Uh, We got married when uh, she was 20, I was 21. We were already dating for like four years out of high school. And so we got married young, and things started off great, right? You know, everything was hot and heavy. Things were great. Relationship was great. We hung out all the time. Uh, Life was awesome. And then kids arrived, right? And then I got four kids, just in case you didn't know. And so life started moving at this different pace. We didn't have enough time for date nights. We actually had to work to go on a date. And things just changed, right? And even though, uh, you know, the excitement of the new relationships sort of faded away, so to speak, one thing that stayed almost the same always without fail was this. Before we went to bed, we always kissed each other. And before I left the house, we always kissed each other. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because of this. A recent study on marriage points out that couples who make it a habit to give each other a ritual embrace or kiss before leaving the house in the morning and another ritual embrace or kiss before retiring at night fare better than those who let this gesture, get this, be determined by simple spontaneity or mood. The study makes the point that even if the ritual kiss is done in a distracted, hurried, or duty-bound way, It still serves a very important function, namely, it speaks of fidelity, a.k.a. commitment, beyond the ups and downs of our emotions. It goes on, beyond distraction, beyond tiredness on a given day, that's what it speaks to. It it, it is a ritual and an act that is done regularly precisely to say what our hearts and heads cannot always say, namely, that the deepest part of us remains committed. Even during those times when we are too tired or self-preoccupied to be as attentive and present as we should be. It says we still love the other and remain committed despite the inevitable changes and pressures the seasons bring. And hear me right, okay? When it comes to me and my wife, we still go on dates, okay? There's still romance in a relationship. Like, she's my best friend. All of that is grace, uh, is great and grace, yeah, at the same time, okay? Like, I just want everybody to know, public service announcement, the my romance, my relationship, it, it's alive, okay? Okay? It's good, okay? I got four kids, people. Hello, okay? So, that being said, pop culture would look at my relationship, though, and it would dissect it, and it would be like, okay, you, me and my wife, uh, don't say I love you, and it doesn't have the same, you know, exciting, romantic, interesting, new thing going on. So because of that lack of felt emotion, it's a sign that something is wrong with our relationship. You get that? But the truth is, ritual sustains the heart and the love in the relationship, not the other way around. I'm going to say that again. The, Truth is, ritual sustains the heart and the love in the relationship, not the other way around. Heart and love don't sustain ritual. Some of you get where I'm going with this. When you apply it to prayer and interacting to God as a relationship, the only way you understand this is that the ritual will direct your heart and your love, not the other way around. 
And the only way to understand prayer as a relationship is to understand this word, Father. Jesus teaching us to pray by addressing God as Father is revolutionary. Some of you need to hear that. Because some of you have grown up in church or maybe even heard the Lord's Prayer. Maybe even, uh, I don't know, prayed the Lord's Prayer as soon as you got, you know, pulled over by the cops or something. That's the first thing that put in, uh, got, like, just got into your head and you just prayed it out loud because you thought like, hey, I'm in a bad situation. I don't know. But you got to listen to this. When it comes to the Lord's Prayer, addressing God as Father is revolutionary. One theologian, N.T. Wright, puts it like this. The very first words of the Lord's Prayer, therefore, contains within it. Not just intimacy, but revolution. Not just familiarity, but hope. In that culture, this word father would have tapped into this idea of God being our liberating father. Meaning, like, they would have understood this well-known story. And just like we're about to uh, celebrate Remembrance Day and remember the, the war, the battle that was fought for our freedom, these Israelites would have known something similar. Their minds right away would have gone to the story of Moses and the Israelites and that God using Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery from the Egyptians and this story recorded in Exodus that God calls Israel son. And not only that, the language looks back to that old Exodus and not only that, it points to this new Exodus that Jesus comes back and finally truly frees us from the consequences of sin and death and makes all things new. This is Jesus' mission on earth. So calling God Father is siding with the liberating Father and coming alongside him to work to see the kingdom come here and now until the final day of liberation. That's what this word connotes. This, this is all the images that are going through their head as Jesus says these words. And that looks like praying for the sick. This is the revolution that's coming. That's what Jesus is talking about. It looks like praying for the sick, seeing them healed. Praying for people to be free from addiction. That's the kingdom coming to the here and the now. But the only way that we can do that, the only way that we can call God Father is to enter into his family. And the only way that we can address him as father is to align ourselves with his work and the bringing of the kingdom of God is, is, is if we become sons and daughters. And this only happens when we realize that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the key to entering into this relationship, to entering into this family. We have to put our faith in him and what he did for us. And this is what, get this, differentiates Christian prayer from all the prayer out there. We all know that there's other religions in the world that pray, right? We're not the only religion. But the thing about Christian prayer is this, is that calling God Father is, is an identification marker that we are truly his followers and we are in a relationship with him. And it sets our prayer apart as Christians from the world around us. It's actually what makes our prayers effective. Calling God Father is our identity as children of God. And this is at the heart of prayer, that the great God has come near to unworthy people with the nearness of father and child. Prayer cultivates this relationship. Prayer aligns us up with the heart of God. And get this, Jesus said this in John 5, 19. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. 
Because whatever the father does, the son also does. So how much more do you think that we need to spend time praying, aligning ourselves with God in order to bring the kingdom in the here and the now? Right, just a question. I'm just gonna throw it out there. Prayer increases our dependence on God. And dependence on God and submission to his desires are the very lessons of prayer. And although, you know, this idea of God being our father is beautiful at times, I also think sometimes it becomes a barrier for some of us when it comes to approaching God in prayer. Like my son Shabby, okay, he is uh, nine years old. And me and him have this great relationship. And I really understand him because he's a lot like me. And so lots of, lots of the time he comes home from school and we chatted up. He tells me how his, his day is going and all that kind of stuff. But some days he comes home and he's very distant. He's kind of removed. He'll try to avoid me. And that's when I know that something went bad at school. That's when he'll probably know that like, he, he doesn't want to lie to me. He doesn't want to tell me what's happening. So he'll retreat. And this is what I noticed, okay? When it comes to his behavior, he avoids me. He doesn't talk to me. And if I ask him a question, he ignores me. Why? Because unconsciously he thinks this. I only want to interact with him when he hasn't done anything wrong. I only want to interact with him, he thinks, when he's on his best behavior. What that has required me to do in those times when he feels like that or something's happened is to go seek him out, to go find him, to go speak words of affection and love over him, words of acceptance, that I don't care what he did, he's always going to be my son who I love. And this is why I say this, in the same way when it comes to God being our father, our parent, when it comes to talking to him, when it comes to praying to him, we have this false idea that we can only talk to him when we're not distracted, when we're not angry, or we haven't done something wrong, when we haven't sinned in a way, be it sexually or any other way. Like, that's the only time that we can approach God. That's the only time that we can uh, 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 be, uh, talk to him, when we have this right mindset. But no, prayer is lifting mind and heart to God. I want you to get that tonight. Prayer is lifting mind and heart to God. And this is going to be freeing for a lot of you in this room. Every thought or feeling is a valid entry into prayer. Every thought or feeling is a valid entry into prayer. What's important is that we pray what's inside of us and not what we think God would like to see inside of us. One of the main reasons we behave like this is because of shame. Very simply, it's shame. The shame we feel from our sin and mistakes. And this has been the case from the beginning of time, right? Just go back to the garden. Go back to Adam and Eve. They did the one thing that God commanded them not to do, right? Eve made apple juice, and what did Adam do? He drank it, right? And everything up to that point, you guys got to get it. That was for Joel over there. Everything up to that point was great. It was good. Everything was going great. And suddenly they realized when they ate from this tree that something was wrong with them, that they were naked. And instead of taking their shame to God, they covered themselves and they hid. And we've been doing the same thing ever since, desperately trying to cover our shame, to hide it from one another. That's why researcher and writer Brene Brown writes this. When it comes to shame, shame only needs three things to grow exponentially. It needs secrecy, silence, and judgment. And here's the sad thing. Sadly, the church often follows society in offering shame-laden people all three. We all have different strategies for dealing with shame, too. 
Some of us cover it like this, cover it with approval. We genuinely believe if enough people like us, we will feel loved. The problem is, though, is that even if we succeed in getting the whole world to like us, it cannot touch our shame because we kept those same people who like us back from really knowing us, therefore rendering them incapable of offering the kind of love we really need. Some of us, we seek to cover it up with work. When it comes to our shame, if we can put enough hours in, climb enough ladders, leave enough of a legacy behind, then maybe, just maybe, it will lighten the load of shame that we're feeling. The problem with that, though, is when it comes to that, the problem is that work becomes a way to escape dealing with ourselves and our wounds, a way of hiding from the very part of ourselves with which we need God to graciously deal with. Still, there are others of us who cover their shame with addictions of all shapes and sizes. Sexual addiction seduces us with the false belief that giving into our lust will somehow make us feel whole. Substance abuse promises us that if we can just alter our moods to feel good enough, then we will have what we need to face difficult times in our life. Both strategies rob our intimacy with God and one another. We not only seek to cover our shame with different strategies, all which end up deepening our shame, we also seek to hide it from one another. In the garden, God said it was not good for man to be alone. And get this, shame is Satan's strategy to make us feel alone. Shame alienates us from one another because hiding is always the natural response to shame. So what's the remedy for shame? Right, where's the hope? How do we fight this universal experience? What should we do with our shame? The hint lies in Genesis 3.21, and you can mark it down and read it later. And I'm just going to paraphrase. Genesis 3.21 is where the Lord, instead of shaming Adam and Eve, covers their shame. Instead of mocking their nakedness, he makes garments out of animal skins. It's the first hint in all of scripture that the answer to our shame will come through a sacrifice of grace. One of the first places that anticipates the work of Jesus. The instant they feel shame is the instant that God responds with showing Jesus to be the solution. I want you to get that. The instant that they experience shame is the instant that God shows them that Jesus is the answer to their shame. And some of you in this room tonight have been carrying this shame, this guilt from past mistakes for way too long. And it could have been this instantaneous experience where if you gave it to God, if you surrender it to him, if you were just vulnerable with whatever that is that you were feeling, it could have been gone. Because remember, there is no condemnation in Christ. When he sees you, he sees Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. And when it comes to being vulnerable, vulnerability is the antithesis to shame. We cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable selves to be deeply seen and known. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is this, is that we don't struggle to be known. We are called to know him, the one who cultivated love in us, our Father. Jesus himself was no stranger to shame. As he went to the cross, he was shamed by his disciples who threw desertion and denial and wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. He was shamed by the religious leaders, covered not only with their injustice, but with their spit. 
He was shamed by the Roman soldiers who stripped him and physically abused him. He was also shamed by those who passed by him on the road and insulted him as he hung naked upon the cross. The cross itself is the ultimate symbol of shame, a gruesome death reserved for the worst kind of men. And at the cross, Jesus experienced the deepest kind of shame, the shame of being rejected by God the Father as unclean. That's why the author of Hebrews writes this, Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And in what sense did he despise its shame? Jesus endured shame that we may take, so that he may take away our own. He didn't come to shame us out of our sins. He came to take the shame out of our sins away from us that we no longer have to deal with it. The revelation of this changes the way that we pray. It allows us to go to God just the way we are and trust him as father who who knows us inside and out. Get that. God knows the sin that you're going to do next week, but he still loves you. At the same time, he knows what you need most. He knows what's best for you. So when you pray, coming to God as Father, you know that your good Father knows your needs before you even ask them, as Jesus says earlier in this, in this sermon. Isn't that incredible? He knows your needs before you even ask. And get this, when it comes to prayer, this, this just blew my mind this week. Even the things that I don't give to God in prayer, the needs that I do have, he still provides for those needs. Even the needs that I do not ask him to provide for, he provides for those needs. That's how good he is. And I'm talking about needs, not wants. Okay, just so we're clear. Those needs that I don't even vocalize to him, he provides for them. And this is the posture that we take when we come to prayer, when we understand the gospel. That when we get prayer, we get God. Do you understand that? You get this communication tool to God. You get full access to God. And if you don't pray much, you probably don't understand the gospel. You probably don't understand God as your father. You're looking for fulfillment in all the created things of this world instead of the creator. Or maybe you don't pray much because... You don't take seriously the fact that God is your good father. And someone said it earlier in our prayer time, our pre-service prayer time, it's because you trust too much in yourself, in your own strength, in your own gifts, in the own ways that you come about providing for your own needs. And sometimes the best thing for you is to lose that job. Sometimes it is, the best thing for you is to lose that relationship that you're dependent on to bring you fulfillment or love so that what? You would run to God and cultivate this relationship, this relationship that he first started with you. But tonight, this is what I want to end. I want to end with this one question. And I'm going to invite Josh up. For some of you tonight, when it comes to prayer, it's more about the transaction than the relationship. And that's how you view it. And that's why you don't pray so much. And I'm praying that that mind shift changes for you tonight. But as we move into a time of ministry time, as we move into a time of reflection, I want you to think about this one question, okay? When it comes to God, do you love God for what he does or who he is?
when it comes to your relationship to God, do you love God for what he does or who he is? I'm going to pray, and Josh is going to come up. So God, I just thank you tonight for your grace, your love, your goodness, your kindness, your mercy that's so abundant, that's so crazy, God, that we don't even fully embrace it as we sit here in this room tonight. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that in the next couple moments that you would open us up to the realization of how loved we are how good the gospel is, how some of us in this room that have been running from God can turn around to find him with open arms ready to embrace us, ready to love us. And I pray, God, that some of us who understand this concept of grace at a head level, that we would experience it today at a heart level that it just becomes so real to us, more real than reality. So I ask God that in the next few moments that you would do all these things for your name's sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, if you found this valuable, would you consider sharing it with a friend that you think would benefit from it? Be sure to follow and subscribe if you haven't already. And we'd love if you left a review because that helps other people discover this content. If you're looking for more information on Sanctus Young Adults, check us out on Instagram, on YouTube, or through our website. Have a great rest of your day.